Welcome to the North Star Unplugged podcast, brought to you from Bozeman, Montana. Your host is Kristen Rainey, the founder and CEO of North Star Sleep School, providing online and in-person sleep courses to help you get better rest. The North Star Unplugged podcast is about rest and rejuvenation, and it's also about unplugging from technology, transitions, and transformations, and spending time and energy on the things that really matter, which are different for all of us. You can find the audio version of the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Finally, you can also see all prior episodes on the North Star Sleep School website at www.northstarsleepschool.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. This is Kristen, and today I'm here with Katie Holleran, who back in 2005 started her company called Behaviorist Next Door. She supports families in multiple ways, as a teacher, as a special education teacher, as a behavior analyst, and as a sleep coach. And what we're going to focus today's conversation around is how she's helping families whose kids are not sleeping well. Katie, welcome to the show, and thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to chat today. So Katie, I'd love to start our discussion with your own journey of how you got into helping families with their kids sleep, you know, first with your academic and career journey in the DC area where you're still based today. And I know after graduating from Georgetown, you earned a master's in special education from George Washington University. At that time, where did you think you were headed professionally? In the beginning, I think I thought I'd be a teacher (laughs) for a very long time. What happened then was I started working with um, students who had autism back in 2005 in the school where I was, which is in Fairfax County. It was a suburb of Washington, D.C. In the school where I was, I was in one classroom for kids with particular special needs. And at that time, it was an umbrella of need called emotional behavioral disabilities. So it may have been things like anxiety or depression or oppositional defiant. Um, We had a lot of, there may be some kiddos with autism, but the tail end of my master's degree was really learning about applied behavior analysis. And that's where I was like, all these pieces of teaching and learning how to create independent learners and really creating independence in kids kind of all came together in this overall field of applied behavior analysis. So I knew there was something there. I just wasn't sure how I wanted to apply it. And at that point, most people were applying applied behavior analysis, either in the classroom setting or in these really intensive therapy settings at home. So like I said, you know, 20 hours a week on top of school um, that, that kids would be getting all this therapy. So I knew there was something in this field that I wanted to pursue. I just wasn't exactly sure how I wanted to apply that science. And I know you have a board uh, certification yeah. in behavioral analysis. Can you briefly share what that certification is? Yeah, so that is where then that interest in this ABA therapy took me. So once you um, once we learn about this field, there's a, another certification. So I took my coursework at Pennsylvania State University. So Penn State has a great program with applied behavior analysis, and it's a post-master's degree. Now you can actually get a master's degree in applied behavior analysis as well, which is, which is awesome. But um, mine was a post-master's degree, so um, lots of coursework around the science of behavior. So, and that's human behavior. You know, I have um, my 
per, my profession now is in my work and career is around kids and um, mostly, you know, elementary, middle school, high school, um, and early learners. But you can apply the science of human behavior actually to a lot of different things. So some folks in my field of behavior analysis are working in um, gambling programs. So how to help folks with different addictions. Um, food uh, dieting is oftentimes behavioral. We look from at that from a behavioral lens of how to really understand a person's behavior and then how to help them create an environment where they can exhibit more positive behavior. So there's a lot of different ways that you can apply this science. Um, and so I had known that that would be, I would be mostly applying it to working with kids, but even a lot of organizational behavioral management. So a lot of like human resources um, has, has uh, uses research from the applied behavior analysis field. So it's really just looking at human behavior and how we do the things that we do and why we do the things that we do, and then how to create more effective ways of in, engaging more positive behaviors for families or kids or even adults in terms of, like I said, with health and things like, like addiction. And I know you're also a certified gentle sleep coach. What is that credential? Yeah, so um, this is kind of following along my kind of career path. Like I said, you know, starting as a teacher and then really seeing that that applied behavior analysis, you know, just really brings together all of those pieces in terms of looking at behavior, but also how to teach skills to kids. Um, and then also then when I first started working with um with kids that and with families in homes, a lot of times sleep would come up as this um, as this elusive detail of families' lives, and um, so that was when I started to get really interested in understanding how we sleep, why we sleep, what happens to our bodies, those types of things, and um, was able to become a certified gentle sleep coach with Kim West, who is one of the leading sleep coaches um, in the United States, and she has a fantastic, really robust training program. I was looking to see kind of how I could get more information, but also get a lot of mentoring around this particular application of, of, of science for me, of the, of the science of behavior. And so taking her coursework, so there's coursework and then there's also mentorship. So you have to do lots of hours of um, really working that, um, with families so you can get feedback on how, they, how you coach families along um, to get better sleep. So that is where that, that certification comes in. And then we have to, we have ongoing sort of ongoing um, uh, coursework that we take to kind of keep our certification and make sure we're staying relevant, staying up with all of the relevant newest research in the field of sleep. And in helping kids with their sleep, what age range is your specialty? So I have worked with all ages from just um, six months, usually, I think is the earliest that I like to start, although I've talked with families with younger kiddos, but we like kind of the full kind of coaching work, we usually start at six months, all the way up. I think the, I think I've worked with some teenagers some some preteens some tweens um, as well. I think my kind of sweet spot is that toddler stage. So like two, uh, two and up, two to three and up. Um, and recently, definitely been in kind of that um, two to six or seven range is, is kind of the bulk of the, of the work that I do these days. And I know you work with both kids who have special needs and those who don't. Um, what are some of the most common types of special needs in the kids you're currently working with? 
related to sleep. In terms of their diagnostics, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. So um, there are lots of families, like you said, that I work with that have um, that have uh, kids who may not have any particular diagnoses. But then there are student or kiddos that I work with who um, may be on the autism spectrum or have developmental delays or Down syndrome or um there are some medical needs that I've worked with. So I've worked with lots of kiddos who have feeding tubes for various reasons. So there may be congenital heart um, defects. There may be um, other more other more kind of robust medical needs where they need a feeding tube as well. Some of those are kind of early in life, the feeding tube is needed. And then with multiple, multiple surgeries, kiddos can kind of wean off of that feeding tube and, and we work with that in tandem. So sometimes it's it's purely medical, but oftentimes I'm working with, uh, with kiddos who have um, a diagnosis in the area of autism, developmental uh, delay, ADHD, um, and Down syndrome. And then in terms of the autism and developmental delay, sometimes there's um, a uh, an early diagnosis or kind of a pre-diagnosis of that developmental delay or a thought that perhaps this is something that a, a child's therapy and medical team is um, looking into. So some maybe some suspicion of those, but not necessarily a full diagnosis. For how long do you typically work with a family? I have kind of a, a standard um, package, although um, no one's necessarily beholden to that. But the way that I kind of have organized my package is really because this is how um, this is how most families and, and I kind of progress together in terms of the coaching. And so we have an initial meeting um, that's usually about an hour and a half long, and we really work on kind of next steps and how the family wants to incorporate sleep into their life and what that can look like and really making plans, kind of logistical plans of how we're going to actually go step-by-step through this process. And then I tell families that we get really close for that first month. and <laughs> We definitely talk a lot. We um, I have families fill out an interactive log. So we're talking a lot um, via, via that log and phone calls um, and all uh, follow-up emails in case they need, you know, hey, this is what happened today. Does that seem right? And I, we can check in on those things. And so that first month, we're, we're getting really close. And usually, usually after the first two weeks, families are seeing a light at the end of the tunnel and they're thinking, okay, we've got this piece down, but maybe there's one kind of sticking point or two sticking points still. And then we can kind of keep going towards that um, end goal. But yeah, but that first month and then um, there's no kind of end point of, you know, then I go away and you can't talk to me anymore. But I would say about about that first month is key. But then it's fun because sometimes even years later, I'll have families um, reach back out to me and say, hey, we are welcoming a new baby or we're moving and we kind of have these new logistical things happening. And we're wondering if you can help us with just a little bit of troubleshooting here and there. So that's super fun because I get to do some follow-ups that way. But the meat of our work is usually about about that month, um, six weeks maybe. So how have your ways of working with families changed since COVID? That's a good question. Um, I think that there's been, I'll start with um, Try to be. I try to be positive. I'll start with some of the silver linings that I've seen. Some of the positive things, you know. I think that families are um, 
because a lot of people have been stuck where they are for better or for worse, that there, there isn't this sense of, well, I have to rush out the door at 6 a.m. or 7 a.m. where they may have had this, you know, they kind of may have been on this just hamster wheel of logistics and got to get out the door and schedules. And so I've seen that families actually have more bandwidth to work on things. And so they've been able to say, okay, we can, we can do that in the morning or, you know, we can push dinner time a little bit earlier so that bedtime is a little bit earlier and allows for more sleep for our kids. And so there's some great things, I think, schedule-wise and logistics-wise that families have been able to kind of capitalize on in this this forced kind of pause that families have had to have um, in COVID. And then some other ways in terms of my work, you know, we do do meet online. um, And I had been doing much of that uh, before because uh, many of my families, I'm in Washington, D.C., as we mentioned, and many of my families are around um, the United States. And I actually work with some international families as well. So um, I had been doing some online consulting now it's all online even if families are relatively local we just keep it online and you know join via zoom and um, chat on the phone things like that so that's certainly kind of shifted um, in terms of in terms of COVID being being all online now which for better for worse we're all (laughs) very used to these days. Katie what are some of the most common categories of sleeping ailments that you see? So it seems to me in my work that there are three buckets of issues that that families come to me with. The first one are issues around bedtime and going to sleep. And then that second bucket is really in the overnight hours. So once we've gotten through bedtime, looking at what happens in those in-between hours overnight. And then the, the third bucket is really what I call early rising. So things that happen um, in the wee hours of the morning that just oftentimes can look a little bit different than those overnight. So those are usually the three buckets of, um, and some, some families um, will have all three. <laughs> they, may have, they may have needs within all three. Some kiddos are just showing kind of two of the three and some it's really just this one piece that families just kind of can't seem to get over the hump. So I'd love to dig into each of those buckets a little bit more. Um, let's start with the, the, the ones, uh, the kids who have challenges at bedtime. Um, what are some of the reasons why kids don't do well uh, at bedtime and what are some of your recommendations to parents in helping that? Our kids' sleep needs shift as they as they grow, um, but there's an important piece um, of what we call an awake window. So if there's a kiddo that's still napping, the time between when they wake up from their nap, uh, let's say they're taking an afternoon nap, so the time they wake up from their afternoon nap to their bedtime, there's a pretty specific awake window that's really important to honor and to keep. And so if we see that that awake window is too short or too long, we can often have some uh, some issues around bedtime. So one of the more common ones is that I see that awake window is too long. So if a kiddo needs probably about a four and a half or five an hour awake window, that would be um, kind of a, t- a two and a half or three-year-old would need that kind of awake window time from their nap time to their bedtime. Uh, if I If I see that that's really long, so let's say it's six or seven hours, um, either the kiddo isn't napping or the nap happens earlier in the day, then then maybe it would be developmentally appropriate for it to happen. We see kiddos who are overtired. So we I talk to families about what I call the sweet spot. So we really need to find, and again, 
What's fun or not fun is that this can shift as kiddos get older, but we need to find that sweet spot for our kiddos of when is the right time for them to be tired enough, but not too tired. Um, we, when we see overtired kiddos, and I talk with families a lot who will say, but they're, they just don't seem tired. They Maybe at dinner time, they seem tired, but then they're finished with dinner and they are running around, you know, just climbing the walls. There's no way they're tired. How could I even you know, put them down at that time because they're not tired. And I talk with them a lot about this sense of, of being overtired. And, you know, we can, I, I, you know, I think that one of the things about sleep is that we get it as adults too. So what that looks like in us is when we're kind of delirious, maybe we're just like, you know, it's like, it's nighttime and we've been, or it's, you know, in the middle of the night and we're working on a project and we've been up for so long that like something really not funny just strikes us as hilarious and we can't stop laughing or we can't concentrate because our brain is just overflowed um, with information um, or with things that we have to do. You know, that's kind of that overtime tired sense. So I try to help families, parents, and caregivers see that that's what that feels like for our kiddos too. And what it looks like is a kiddo who may be running around, dancing, screaming, singing, just like all the things that don't look like what we imagined as adults to be like, oh, that's that's a tired kiddo. Um, So that overtired piece is certainly one of the major things that happens at bedtime when we miss that sweet spot for kids. And then there's also, in terms of bedtime, there's also, um, so the, the first thing is kind of looking proactively at that schedule, like I mentioned, making sure we're really setting that up to have that perfect developmentally appropriate kind of window for our kids so that we're setting the environment up well. The other piece there is is more kind of behavioral and how um, this this kind of resistance to bedtime. So um, there we all remember being kids and not wanting to go to bed. Um, and so that is real for, for kids these days too. You know, it's fun things happen. You know, they have that FOMO. They don't want to miss out on whatever mom and dad are doing or they want to just stay awake for various reasons. And sometimes it feels like I have to, you know, miss out on a lot of things if I have to fall asleep. So it's a very natural feeling. But we can see that manifests itself in a lot of resistance to falling asleep. And so we can elongate that process. And one of the reasons I love working with the two and three-year-old is that um, Kim West calls them the encores or curtain calls, the really fun um, times when all of a sudden I have these important things to tell you now that you're putting me to sleep. I have all these important things that happened today. I could have told you in the last you know five hours when we were together, but I'm choosing right now to tell you, or I need 75 sips of water, or I definitely need to go to the bathroom 13 more times. And these are all just these really fun behavioral ways to kind of elongate that bedtime. So a couple of quick follow-up questions. Um, for a parent who's two or three-year-old is, is doing that elongation of bedtime and saying they have to pee 15 times or uh, telling them seven hours worth of stories, et cetera, what should a parent do to shorten that elongation time so that bedtime is not dragged out over 45 minutes. 
Yeah, I think a lot of it is is setting limits and being super clear with kids. I don't think it has to be all or nothing like now you can't say anything or now you can never go to the bathroom again after this time. I think though really meeting kids in the middle and finding out where they are. So I do a lot of kind of baseline information and understanding with my family. So if we're having, you know, 13 encores, we wouldn't then say tomorrow night say you can't ever either tell me anything or get out of bed or have a cup of water, have a sip of water. We would do that. I, I usually recommend to families that we would kind of push that back in a in more incremental way. So if 13 is kind of our baseline, that's a lot. Let's get it down to 10. And really, you know, depending on the age and the cognitive availabilities of, of kiddos, we can really bring them into that process and say, you know, I've noticed that this is what happens. Um, and with our with our older kids, and again, depending on where they are developmentally and cognitively, you know, sometimes having those conversations can be super helpful. If it's a younger kid or a kiddo who's not quite, you know, going to be able to understand any kind of longer conversation about it, we can just kind of start to set those limits. And then I think the key is actually sticking with those limits, right? And so... Also, another thing that I'll tell the families about, again, on that proactive um, on that proactive side, is starting bedtime that much earlier. If you know that we've got that kind of wind down time, then we need to allow for it. And um, you know, Kristen, I'm sure you talk about this in t- on the adult side too. You know, we need to allow our bodies some time to kind of just relax and to regulate. And in terms of in terms of getting our bodies ready to sleep, so it's the same thing. We can't expect you know 7:30 you're in bed, 7:40 you got to be asleep necessarily. And I have some some visuals. I like to use kind of charts and visuals. I use what I call a routine checklist, which is really just a visual of a kiddo's bedtime routine. So maybe put on pajamas, put on, you know, brush your teeth, go to the bathroom, read two stories, um, kiss from mom or dad, um, and then, and then lights out. And that it's a, it's a, um, I have families kind of printed out and I have them put a picture of their kiddo doing those things because that's super exciting. Most kids love to see things that star themselves. And so they can see that visual of them doing those things. And then they know, oh, the chart's over. And it becomes less about mom or dad or caregiver versus me as a child. It's, oh, the chart says that this, now our routine is finished and it's time to fall asleep. So um, those are just some of the, the strategies that I would suggest with families. So I have one more quick question on this bucket, and then I have a bazillion other questions about other things. So um, the, the first, this last question here is just, um, you mentioned that it's really important, depending on the age of the kid, that, that the awake window between the end of their afternoon nap and the time that they go to bed is really very specific and, and really important so that the kid isn't um, awake too many hours and then super overtired. Right. Um, how do you determine whether it's better if the awake window is too long to push the nap time until later in the afternoon or to have the kid go to bed earlier for the night? That is an excellent question. And it do, it really depends on the family and on the logistics. So not as many kids that I'm working with are going to daycare anymore or school anymore. But sometimes they that if that, especially pre-COVID when that was the case, um, you know, it's it's not very easy for a whole 
kind of system, a whole classroom to kind of switch their timing. So if, if, if nap is from 1130 to 1230, and then the kiddos going from 1230 to 730, and that's too long of a window, and we can see that based on, on their behavior, then the families, if the family can't, not that the, the daycare or the school isn't willing, it's just that that's what works logistically in their schedule. And it's too hard to kind of shift those things around for that particular kiddo, then I would suggest that families need to move earlier. If they have the ability to do so, if they're if the kiddo's at home or if they're in a smaller daycare where they can be more flexible, then we would shift kind of that nap time to be a little bit later to allow for that for that perfect kind of window. So I really just talk with families about what's feasible and what's not. So if it's feasible to switch the nap time, we would start there to shift that. And if it's not, or if a kiddo is consistently missing nap time, I have had plenty of kiddos who might nap at home, but really struggle to nap in a larger environment with lots of other kiddos around or vice versa. They may do well during the day, but have a really tough time going to take a nap at home. So then we would just shift that bedtime early. So it really depends on kind of what's feasible for families, but those would be the kind of two options. We need to either look at shifting nap time or we need to look at shifting bedtime earlier. So depending on what's feasible, we can, we can go either way. So the second bucket of sleep challenges you mentioned for kids was the middle of the night challenges when the kids are waking up many, many times. Why are some kids waking up so frequently during the night? That's a really good question. And I think, you know, that is actually similar. It's not, it's not um, a huge departure from, from the bedtime piece. You know, we know that um, overtiredness can lead to, to more wake up. So there's more disruptions in our sleep. Um, one of the things that I talk with families about a lot is what we call a partial arousal versus a full wake up. So we know even as adults, we are multiple times a night between our sleep cycles. We are, we are waking up our bodies and, and, you know, Kristen, you're great about, you know, you love to look at data and to look at graphs. So you can see on someone's sleep graph that there's, you know, in and out of deep sleep. Um, and so on those times where it's where we're really in that light sleep, oftentimes we will have what we call a partial arousal. Many of those we don't even know are happening, especially as adults. We may roll over, fix our pillow, get ourselves snug um, under our blankets, and then be right back down into, into deeper sleep. When kids have some sleep disruptions overnight, what I often see is that those partial arousals happen as as they naturally will happen. And our kids don't necessarily have the skills to get themselves reorganized and fall back to sleep. So I really look at it, and I think mostly because I come from an education background, is I really look at this as the skill of falling back to sleep. So at bedtime, it's that skill of falling asleep independently and how we can organize that. And then overnight, it's that skill of falling back to sleep once I wake up. So a quick, what what should be or can be a quick partial arousal, and then I get reorganized and I fall back asleep, um, it, it gets disrupted. So it becomes a full wake up. And then kiddos are in the spot where they're not quite sure what to do because they don't have that skill of falling asleep on their own. So they're not quite sure what to do with that. Then it's scary. Um, You know, it's dark, it's quiet. Things look different than what they did at bedtime. I'm not sure what to do here. There may be a history too of a change in environment at that point. So many families that I work with, um, 
will then at that point when there's been a number of wake-ups overnight and kiddos are really having trouble falling asleep on their own, they'll say, you know what, we're all exhausted. Just come in our bed or come in our room. And if they're if they're in their own room for the beginning part of the night, then they end up in parents' room, which is so normal, so typical, so understandable. We're all exhausted. Let's just do what we can to get asleep, to get some sleep. The problem there becomes that then kiddos, when they wake up in their own room, feel like, wait, this isn't where I'm supposed to be. I need to, I need to fully wake up and move locations. So that's one thing that often I've seen kind of um, depending on the history of behaviors or the history of changes or things that have happened, then, kiddo, then it becomes that habit, right? And so whether that's changing a room, changing location, whether it's just mom or dad coming in every single time, and then we're kind of in that habit. So it could look very different it's really just that um, there's some sort of kind of history of behavior that happens at that point. But usually it starts with that partial arousal becoming that full wake up. Um, and then kids not having the skill to be able to put themselves back to sleep, which I really do see as a different skill than putting themselves to sleep at bedtime. You know, the environment looks different. It feels different. Um, it, it is. It can be very different for our, for our kids to fall asleep independently on their own and then than it is to fall asleep overnight. So is the best approach then to have your kids learn how to self-soothe and learn how to get themselves back to sleep and therefore let your kid cry it out? What's your philosophy on that? We can prescribe to the cry it out uh, methodology and, you know, close the door, cross our fingers, hope all goes well, and we'll see the kiddos in the morning. Um, Especially because I work with uh, many times older kiddos, that is logistically difficult, right? So if our kiddo is in a bed and they can get up, that can be a safety concern. Um, Oftentimes we're waking up many members of the household if there are siblings, things like that. If we're kind of just kind of allowing kiddos to kind of do whatever in those moments, it can be, it can be stressful. And um, it also, for many of the families that I work with, just doesn't feel Right. So it just doesn't feel like a fit with parenting. We also have some research and sometimes the research can be um, a little confusing and a little problematic in terms of how specific they've been in the research about the methodologies used and kind of what constitutes cry it out. But I think that we have enough growing research to know that um, only using that as an option is 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 problematic for, for many reasons. And we want to look at the attachment of the kiddos. We want to look at how secure the kiddos feel in what happens in, in terms of that, in terms of that behavior on our side as parents and as caregivers. So what I often will talk with families about is a more gradual approach. So we've talked a bit about the, the kids who, who are not going to sleep uh, at bedtime. And then we've talked a little bit about the kids who are waking up during the night. That third bucket you mentioned is the kids who are waking up way too early, uh, like 4 a.m. or whatever. Um, what's often causing that? Well, there are a few causes. So, um, and the, the way I kind of define this early rising is that we, I, my mom, I kind of hearken back to my, my time as a teenager when, uh, I wanted my, um, curfew to be later. I think it was 10 o'clock or something that I thought was just terrible. And so I wanted my curfew to be later. And my mom said, nothing good happens after 10 o'clock at night. And so I feel the same way before 6 a.m. Nothing good happens before 6 
am with kids. So we, I usually have that as my, as my kind of barometer of, of anything before 6 a.m. is an early rising. Now we can get into that gray area of kind of what's overnight versus what is early rising. But oftentimes it's that between 4 a.m. and 6 a.m. when kiddos are just awake. So we see, you know, families will report, you know, and then they were just kind of ready to go. You know, I'm exhausted as the adult, but they seemed ready to go at 4.30 in the morning. I'm not quite sure what to do with that. And we do know some kind of sneaky reasons as to why these early risings happen. One is just the, the over the piece of being overtired. So oftentimes if our kids lose, if our kids drop naps too early, we can see that overtiredness result in an early rising. If the bedtime's too late, which oftentimes is very counterintuitive, right? I'll put my kiddo to bed later so that they'll sleep later in the day. That may work with teenagers, but usually before teenagers, it doesn't work. And our kids aren't usually naturally sleeping in. They're unfortunately waking up even earlier, which has got to be one of the more frustrating parts of parenting when you're like, oh, good. It's already you know 10 o'clock and they're going to bed. I bet they'll sleep till eight or nine in the morning. And then they're up at 4.30. That becomes you know really stressful for families. So I think that that's one of the, again, kind of counterintuitive um, pieces of, of sleep. So the nap um, and the and the sleep overall are those, those are the kind of biggest buckets of reasons why I see that those early risings happen. And then also we want to look at what happens when it's early, when our kiddos wake up early. So that is, again, kind of over to this behavior side, like what are the results? What, are, what's, what is reinforced once a behavior, once, once a child wakes up early. So oftentimes, because we're exhausted as parents and caregivers, it's that's the time where we can just like veg out and like maybe throw on a movie or a show or the kiddo gets their iPad at that point because we just don't have the bandwidth to do much else um, at 4.30 in the morning. Again, totally fair. But what happens is that that becomes then the habit and maybe the reason why I want to wake up at 4.30 because I get that cool iPad time and it's quiet and it's time to myself. And, um, you know, the earlier I wake up, the, the quicker I get that. So we do want to look at kind of what happens when those, when those early risings happen and making sure that we're consistent about, about what that looks like for kiddos and that it's not actually more fun than going back to sleep. So what should a parent do then when their kid's waking up at 4.30? They should look at the schedule overall and say, um, you know, do I have the developmentally kind of appropriate nap time? Is it happening at the right time of the day? So again, with the nap, it could be that it's not happening at all, or they dropped, um, or they they have it at the at a kind of time that's not causing that awake window that is needed. So you know, look at the timing and the duration of the of the naps. Um, looking at bedtime, kind of what that looks like, uh, what time it is, making sure that that's at a, an age appropriate or developmentally appropriate time for a kiddo. And then looking at looking at what happens, you know, it's, I think it can be so hard to, that's the, that's the hardest piece for sure of like, of course, at 5am, I just want to like rest my eyes a little bit. So I'll bring you down to the couch and we'll just veg, you know, and I, I totally get that. But I think you have to look at something that's not as reinforcing, not as fun. So um, what I usually will try to do is stay is have families stay um, help kiddos stay in bed or in their room until that six o'clock time there's a couple of different strategies that I utilize for that too so Katie by the time you became a parent in 2008 you'd already had your business for several years by that point has your approach on helping kids with their sleep changed at all since you became a parent 
A thousand percent. Yes. <laughs> I had a lot of thoughts about how easy everything in parenting was going to be because I understood teaching. I understood behavior. I was just going to knock this out of the park. <laughs> and then you realize very quickly becoming a parent, how many layers there are, how difficult it can be to actually get all these pieces to fall into place. So um, absolutely. I think that I think the biggest piece is just that I totally get it. And I try to be really honest with families about you know, what's important is just where we are, how we got here, and I also subscribe to the belief that it's only a problem if it's a problem. So if it makes sense for a family to um, share a bed, for a family to share a room, for a kiddo to to share a room with siblings, whatever kind of logistics make up a family's um, life, if that's what works for the family, then we figure out how to create more effective sleep around, around that. Now, if there's kind of some big pieces that we're seeing, okay, that's starting to become a problem, then we can look at it. But again, for me, it's about, it's only a problem if it's a problem. So if you find that this is working for you and we're not seeing major disruptions in sleep, then we can, let's just stick with that. And let's look at some other pieces of the day that we may be able to kind of reorganize um, in a more effective way. So I think that's the biggest piece. I think before I was a parent, it was very, it was much more prescriptive of like, no, this is how it should be. And this is what every family should be doing. And now I am um, much more understanding of the fact that everybody has their own layers. Everyone has their own pieces of how their life works together. Um, and so I can support wherever it, wherever I can, um, but that there isn't this kind of prescription of what every family should, should look like, I think is kind of where I've, where I've evolved. <laughs> so for these kids with sleeping challenges, do their parents often have poor sleeping habits? Yes, that's a good question. I mean, I think as a result of our kids not sleeping, yes, oftentimes our family, our parents and caregivers are really experiencing lots of sleep disruptions too. You know, I do often in my interviews and in my initial meetings, um, you know, uh, a mom will say, you know, I struggled with this as a kiddo, or I remember that I never slept at this time and at my bedtime was super late. So a lot of times we're using kind of our history as, as um, adults to kind of say, well, this is probably what's happening. Um, but I think in this moment when our kids are experiencing sleep disruptions by nature of that, we often have families, I often have caregivers who are experiencing a lot of sleep disruptions. And I think too, what's interesting is that Sometimes parents, even when they've gotten their kiddos sleep on track, I'll chat with them and they'll say, okay, now how can you help me? Because I have these like phantom wake-ups at 2 a.m. because my kiddo always used to wake up at 2 a.m. So now my body's waking up at 2 a.m. And I know I don't need to get up because now my kiddo is sleeping, but it seems like there's this habit then that's ingrained in the adults too. And so they're working on their own sleep. Oftentimes they kind of have to get through the 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 kiddos sleep to really get that part organized and then they can focus on themselves and they start to see some of those pieces of their own sleep that are, that are problematic too. That's interesting. So the, the, the causality direction is, is, is more likely to be the kids poor sleeping habits are impacting the parents as opposed to vice versa of parents poor sleeping habits impacting the kids. 
Yeah, I mean, it probably goes both ways. I would say that more of the reporting because kids are because families are coming to me, you know, first and foremost, working for their, you know, working on their on their kids sleep. But I think that sometimes they will say, oh, interesting, should we be doing that too? You know, and they'll start to see that they should probably apply some of those, you know, kind of self-regulation strategies I talk about a lot, especially at that bedtime, you know, how can you help your own body um, relax and things like that, you know, and we talk about, we talk about blue light right before bed, which, uh, you know, is one of the, one of the key components of whether we're adults or kids, you know, not having those screens right before bed, those types of things are, are helpful for all. But I think that a lot of families will be like, oh yeah, I guess, I guess we should probably do that too. Huh? So I think because of the nature of my work is that we're usually focused on the kiddos first. Um, and, but sometimes that is just, yeah, by default, because kiddos are having trouble sleeping, we, we see that the parents are too. Um, but, I, but there's definitely some, also some um, acknowledgement from families of saying, yeah, I know we're not very good about that part either or whatever it is. So over the, the past decade or, or more, um, I've had a number of friends, uh, new parents who have declined doing fun things with me during daytime hours. Of course, this is pre-COVID when we all actually had social lives um, because the event might interfere with their kids' nap time. And, um, you know, perhaps this was just an excuse, an easy excuse not to hang out with me. But um, <laughs> since when do kids' naps trump all? I mean, and, and maybe they should based on some of the things you've said today. Um, you know, should we be prioritizing naps for kids to the extent that, uh, that, that maybe that is legit? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a really good question. I love it. <laughs> I think it's great. You know, as a sleep coach, I would say, yes, naps do trump all. Uh-huh. You know, I think what's interesting, I think what that brings up often, and I, I don't know if you see this too, Kristen, in your work, is that I think we have a really interesting cultural um, thought process around sleep. And it almost feels um, secondary to all other things that we do in our lives. And it becomes this like bummer of like, oh, I have to sleep now. And we think that we're missing out on things, like I said before, or that, you know, we're not going to be as productive as we would be if we could just stay up all night. You know, I've heard like, I'll sleep when I'm, when I'm dead, those types of things, you know, that people feel like I've got to cram in all of this awake time because that's when good things happen. Um, So, you know, I I wonder if that's part of why that feels that way is that we have this very, um, you know, there are many cultures around the world who really do value daytime sleep and really do see that as important. Um, And I think that, you know, I think we have gotten into this... um, mindset of that it's a, it's not something that we should necessarily prioritize. Now, I, that doesn't mean that I'm completely inflexible about it um, as, as a sleep coach as well, that I think that, um, you know, there's certainly one of the things that I talk with families about is that in the beginning, we do have to be sticklers and we have to be those people who are like, yeah, I can't come to your birthday party at 1230 because that's my kids now. But once we get things on track, um, which again, you know, it doesn't take that long in the whole scheme of things. If we're looking at a month of like, we just got to be all in for this month, then we can start to be more flexible because our kids will have, again, because I look at this as our kids learning that skill. So if our kids are learning that skill of being able to fall asleep on their own, if we've gotten to the point where they know that skill, they've mastered that skill, we can start to be more flexible with So Katie, for you and your family, what's one non-negotiable around sleep? (laughs) 
That's a good question. Probably my kids would tell you I have way too many non-negotiables. <laughs> um, wow, that's a really good question, Kristen. You know, my kids now are uh, almost 10 next week and 12. And I have gotten much cooler in my bedtime uh, timing. And especially with COVID, we've been able to stay up until like 8.15. Nice. You know, unheard of in my family. Um, before that, I was very much, um, uh, very much a stickler. And then one, I guess one non-negotiable is I'm a huge baseball fan. So my kids will always say like, if there's baseball on, we know we can stay up late because mom will <laughs> stay up late. So if we were back in the day, we were going to baseball games or if we were watching baseball on TV, um, I was... I, I could be a cool mom then. So they like baseball mom. <laughs> Other than nice. that, there's probably not a whole lot. <laughs> so we're we're coming up on March 19th, which uh, for some listeners might not be familiar with this. It's World Sleep Day. Are you doing anything special to celebrate World Sleep Day? You know, I am um, working with Kim West. She has such a great, um, uh, a great like social media presence. So she's doing a lot of work around, around sleep, um, which I really appreciate even just information, you know, getting information out, things like that, which I love. So probably piggybacking on some of that, but I haven't planned any kind of celebrations or special. That's a great idea. That'd be fun. And I know you have a book called the good night sleep tight workbook. Katie, can you share briefly what that book is about and who it's for? Yeah. So this is really written for parents uh, with kids with special needs. So really looking at, um, uh, we, t- we call our, the title is for, for toddlers to tweens. Um, so really looking at that kind of um, uh, chronological, probably age two-ish to uh, end up and really looking at developmentally appropriate schedules. Um, so I've kind of alluded to that kind of what, you know, about finding that great schedule. So this really lays out, here's a great schedule for your kiddo at this developmental age. Um, And then how you can organize to get to that schedule. So how to get from where you are now to where you want to be in terms of schedule. Um, And then really organized around those buckets that I talked about in terms of um, how to organize bedtime, how to troubleshoot when things aren't going great around bedtime, same with overnight, and then same with early rising. And that that, vi- that visual that I mentioned in terms of the routine checklist, I have templates in there for families to utilize um, and take with them and, and utilize at home. And I have a few other visuals along with some um, really great relaxation strategies that I work with families about. And then also some of those really specific point by point ways. So we talked about, you know, if cry it out really isn't a fit for a family, then what? And so I um, outline what we call the, the shuffle the sleep lady shuffle and that is um, in the research it's it's called fading um, so you've you fade the adult's presence so it's a very gentle way of incrementally moving away from a kiddo while they're learning how to learning that skill of falling asleep or going back to sleep so I outline the whole process in there and how that works and then again with some troubleshooting when when you're getting stuck in particular places um, within that process. So as we wrap up today, uh, Katie, will you share three uh, book titles for listeners? Sure, absolutely. Uh, Of course, I had to include 
a sleep title. Um, I really like actually um, Terry Cat. There's there's a number actually, but Terry Katz and Beth Mallow who wrote uh, Solving Sleep Problems in Children with Autism Spectrum Disorders. That was the first kind of um, time that you know reading through that the research in that book and what they what they wrote about in that book I think was super helpful for me to really get an understanding of how to again meld my world of being a sleep coach but also working with kids with special needs. So that was super super helpful. And even some of the research is really, you know, just really important in that, in that book. So that's, it's a, it's a, it's a common go-to for me for sure. Um, and the next book actually is, it's called The Hate You Give uh, by Angie Thomas. It's actually technically, I think it's a young adult novel um, for, for a young adult audience. My seventh grader is currently reading it. I had read it over the summer um, and my seventh grader is reading it now. And so it's a really fascinating story that has um, it's really important right now. So it's a young woman who is um, who experiences a very traumatic event, um, uh, a, a police uh, a murder around um, around the police uh, with one of her family members, and just really looking at our American society and some of the injustices and and concerns that we are all that are all too familiar for all of us now um, that to understand in America. So I it's a really, really great read and I think really important. And I'm really excited that my seventh grader is reading it. I realize how um, sheltered I was as a seventh grader. These are these are themes that I wouldn't necessarily have been reading um, at his age, but I am appreciative of the of the opportunity for this for this kind of great work that's that's out there. So I would highly recommend that for for everyone. Um, and then um, Jody Picole is uh, an author that I just love. I anything that I read of hers, I'm done in just a couple of days. I just, I, I just get so into her fiction. She's just an incredible writer. And I'm always amazed with the research that she does. I just finished one that's called the book of two ways. Um, and the woman, the main character is an Egyptologist and she, they, all this research that Jody must have done to, to create this fictional character and everything that she knew. And it, Oh, it's just a great, a great read. I love all of her stuff. So it's not one book, anything by her is, is just fantastic. Fantastic. Well, we will include all those in the show notes, uh, which listeners can find at northstarsleepschool.com forward slash podcast. Uh, Katie, great to have you on the show today. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much, Kristen. This was great to be a part of. And uh, for listeners, be sure to check out Katie's website um, if you want to learn more about her services at behavioristnextdoor.com. And um, feel free to check out earlier uh, episodes of the podcast um, on the North Star Sleep School website. Um, And if you'd like any updates on new episodes or updates on sleep classes, you can sign up for our e-newsletter by going to the bottom of any page at northstarsleepschool.com. Take care, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the North Star Unplugged podcast. The audio version can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. If you like North Star Unplugged, please subscribe and leave a review on one of those channels. Finally, all prior episodes are also on the North Star Sleep School website at northstarsleepschool.com, which offers an e-newsletter you can sign up for.